Let's do that hockey. You're listening to Dauber Prospects Radio. This is episode 92, and uh, it's the day after Father's Day. So before I get too far into the show, I just kind of wanted to take a second to say happy Father's Day to all the dads out there. I hope you had a good day with your dad. If you're a dad, I hope you had a good day with your with your family. And a uh, little shout out to my dad. Thanks very much for being uh, such a great dad and raising me the way you did. These are some crazy times that we're going through right now in the world, and uh, I feel very fortunate to have been raised by uh, by my dad and my mom, and uh, and growing up the way I have, um, I'm very appreciative of the lessons that they've taught me. And speaking of crazy times, this episode is going to be a special episode, and I'm going to be joined by special guest Steve Seftel, who is a former professional hockey player, came through my backyard in Kingston, and he has recently released a book called Shattered Ice, and I just finished reading it, and it's a great book. I really enjoyed reading it, and uh, it follows his journey through his hockey career the ups and the downs, how it ends sooner than he would have liked, and some of the struggles he had along the way. And I thought it was fascinating and relevant to this show because we talk about prospects, and his book starts when he's nine years old playing hockey, basically. Um, so very, very pleased to be welcomed, uh, to welcome onto the podcast, uh, Steve Seftel. How's it going, Steve? Thanks for coming on. Very good. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to uh, be a guest with you. Um, so your book just came out, uh, let's do a little bit of background, um, about you. I mean, it's covered very extensively in your book, but for those who haven't read it, um, you're, uh, you're from Canada and Ontario grew up in, in Kitchener. Um, so just kind of give me a little, a brief overview of how your hockey career played out. I was a graduate of Kitchener minor hockey and I was drafted by the Kingston Canadians in 19... 19- 85 in the OHL draft in the third round. Um, Kingston wasn't on my radar at the time. I had heard from half the teams in the league, and Kingston was not one of them, but that's often the way the draft can go. And then a year later, which in 1986, I was drafted in the second round by the Washington Capitals. Played three full seasons for the then Kingston Canadians. I loved my time in Kingston. It's a great city. I then turned professional at 20, started in the uh, American Hockey League with the Baltimore Skipjacks, and uh, played my first NHL game in 1991 at the Joe Lewis Arena against the Detroit Red Wings. I started the game and lined up right beside Bob Probert, so that was a real thrill for me as an introduction to the league. And um, yeah, my career ended short uh, in 1993. I did have several injuries, some serious knee injuries and some other mental health issues I was struggling with. But uh, I retired from the game at age 24. And I spent three years in Kingston before moving home to Kitchener in 1995. And I've been in Kitchener-Waterloo since. So people who just listen to that are probably thinking to themselves, what the hell's a skipjack? But you'll have <laughs> to you'll have to buy the book to get that answer. Yeah. Um, so... I kind of what I what took away from this uh, reading this book was I really enjoyed being along for the journey of your career. A lot of uh, a lot of hockey fans um, 
played hockey as a kid and, and weren't like myself and, and weren't very good at it. So my dream ended way before yours. <laughs> <laughs> the, the way my the way my dream ended i would have been about i don't know 10 years old and i was going my dad was driving me home after a game and i don't know how it came up but we were talking about what we wanted to do and when i when i grew up or whatever and i was like well i'm gonna be an nhl player duh and he's like oh that's great he's like how many players a year do you think make it to the nhl from toronto I was like, oh, uh, probably not too many. I don't know, maybe about four or five. He's like, yeah, maybe. He goes, and of all the pl- the guys that that play in in your league, um, who are the best players? And he's like, are are you one? I was like, mm, no, maybe not yet. And he's like, are you one of the best players on your team? And I was like, mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, right. So basically, do the math. Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a great point, Peter. Um, you know, I talked in the early in Shattered Ice about playing on the outdoor rinks here in Kitchener and we all yourself, myself, when we're six, seven years old playing on those outdoor rinks, we all have the same dream. And how many players you hear tell that story about they dream of scoring the winning goal in game seven of the Stanley cup. We all think we're going to be that guy when you're seven, seven, eight, you can dream and, think that's going to be me one day and that's part of was part of what i wanted to show in the book was those steps like we don't always see this what did you we talked earlier what happens behind the scenes and, and the journey from that backyard rink to the national hockey league and it's not always an easy one and it's a little bit different for everybody indeed and it's kind of another term that i heard when i early on my earlier days in the press box is one of the Kingston Wake standard writers said to me, um, it's the rule of two and 20. There's two guys on a, a team that have a chance of in the OHL of playing in the NHL. And there's 20 guys that think they do. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, that made me think of the story. My, my dad educated me with many, many years ago. Yeah. Um, so the, the book is about, your uh, journey as a hockey player through junior and then into your pro career. And as you mentioned, uh, spoiler alert, it ends a little early for you. And then you talk a lot about some of the struggles you had while you played. And everyone needs to remember that when you get drafted into the OHL and you make the team out of your OHL draft, you're a 16-year-old kid. And chances are you're not drafted by your hometown city if they even have an OHL club. So you have to move out and live with a billet family. Um, if anyone who's listening to this podcast doesn't know what a billet family is, it's basically a surrogate family, a family in another city that lets you move into their house and, and live there. And um, they take you in and, and feed you and give you a place to live. And you go to school in a new city as a 16-year-old, which could probably be very difficult too. Um, that's maybe something that a lot of listeners can relate to if they moved schools when they were in high school and moved cities, had to start fresh with a new circle of friends. Um, you probably had an advantage with that being on a hockey team. So you might've had a couple of teammates on the team that were already in the school, or maybe you could start a, a clique with when, when you went, but let's talk a little bit about, um, your first season in the OHL. Um, in your book, you you mentioned that when you showed up to training camp, how it went, you signed a, a player agreement contract thing, and then basically 
grabbed your suitcase and moved into your billet family. And um, that, that that chapter ends with uh, a reference to there's no crying in baseball. Um, so, <laughs> which which I thought was great. Um, but I think that that was the first indication in the book that I saw really where um, like wow, it's not always sunshine and lollipops. Uh, so tell me a little bit about uh, billeting. Yeah, um, that day you reference in the in the book um, in Shattered Ice. I'll never. For, it's one of the memories I'll never forget. I remember my parents. We drove to Kingston. I'd been there for a couple of tournaments in minor hockey, but I'd never been to Eastern Ontario a whole lot. But um, my parents dropped me off. And I remember walking into the, the Canadian's dressing room with my this big blue, awkward looking suitcase that had my whole life in it. And the veterans were kind of gathered around in the room. And here I come walking in this new fresh face with my big suitcase. I remember feeling so uh, like a much like a fish out of water in that environment with this suitcase. We had a meeting with Coach O'Donnell at the end of the day. My parents got back in the car and left. So now, you know, it's just me and the, and all these new players. And we had our final meeting, and then we got driven to our billets. And Scott Pearson, who was turned, would end up being the best man at my wedding, but we became very good friends. We lived in the same neighborhood, and he billeted with general manager or ex-general manager Ken Slater. He had just, and um, but he was on the same street as me. But I got dropped off at uh, my Billis house, Dennis and Ellen Stone, terrific people. But you walk in there, tomorrow's the first day of camp, which is the reason you're there. And that's the, the biggest, that's the biggest thing on your mind. But at the same time, you're dropped off at seven in the evening and you're getting introduced to your new bedroom, these new people. And I just, I remember they brought me to the room you know, near the end of the night, I said, it's time for bed after we had some, you know, just talk about what we're going to do in the morning. And I sat on the bed, closed the door, sat on the bed, looked at my big blue suitcase and looked around the room. And I did start to well up because I was just thinking about everything. My parents leaving, the pressure of making this hockey team and the expectation of family and friends. Like, that's a big part of it, too. You, especially in minor hockey, a lot of guys are used to being, I'll use it. I use the term, the big fish in the little pond, but now you're coming to this new environment and you don't want to disappoint anybody, even though that's self-inflicted pressure. So yeah, you mentioned, I, I just started welling up in the room, but then I realized, no, I, I'm here to play hockey and I have to squash these feelings and that we don't want to never want to be seen as weak. You want to be seen as, able to handle any situation so I just talked myself out of it anyway, but the billets end up being a huge resource for you I mean you, you wouldn't make it without them um, and they take they treat you as one of the family my experiences with my billets were always excellent and I thoroughly uh, enjoyed my time there and respect the commitment they make to the players like the league they're a vital part of the Ontario Hockey League and other junior leagues. Yeah, I don't see how it would be possible other than players only playing in their home city if billet families didn't take in players. Yeah, and uh, you know, my, I live with a second family, the Morans, Larry and Janice Moran, and uh, I was for my second and third season. And when I moved in there, Janice, they had a one son, and Janice was pregnant with their second, so... I mean, these are people with young families of their own who are willing to take in a teenage hockey player and basically treat you as one of their own. 
another son in that case. So it's, it's a huge commitment. Yeah, it must be a lot of pressure on you as well, being a guest in their house, right? Like you're in a new city, you're trying to make a new team, you're adapting to a new school, and you're a guest in someone's house. I mean, if you screw that up, then what? You get, if they kick you out, does that get you cut from the team? Like, how good is your standing on the team? That must be some things that go through your mind when you're there. And you got to be, you know, best behavior. And when you're a teenager, it's not always easy to be on your best behavior. You maybe come home with a couple of drinks in after curfew or whatever. And then that puts your billet family in an awkward situation. Do they tolerate that? Do they, do they rat you out? Um, did you, are those pressures and struggles that, that are accurate for me to assume? Yeah, absolutely. And we, with the Morans, you know, with, well, with the Stone family, I was a rookie, so I, I really towed the line that year. Um, certainly wasn't breaking curfew, but, and not to say I did it a lot in my second and third year, but you get more confident in your second and your third year to venture out a bit more. And, but with the Morans, the rule was, they were very straight up and I always appreciated their honesty. They said, if, and Coach O'Donnell would call for curfew periodically. That was part of it. He, he'd literally call you. Like after a game, if he said curfew was at midnight, sometimes he would call at midnight and you had to be there to answer the phone to say you're home and say hi to him and good night. But the Morans said to me right off the hop, if coach calls for curfew and you're not here, we're going to tell him you're not here. You got to own that. Yep. And I was, I mean, I was usually home anyway. I was pretty much a real follower most of my life. Um, but yeah, they, they were honest with me that way. And I appreciated that. And I didn't expect them to, to not to do it any differently. But I know in some instances you were mentioning about billets, maybe not jiving with the player. Not everybody, I was lucky, but not everybody got along with their billets or had a, a combat compatible situation. And it's not unusual to have somebody change billets or uh, just the situation doesn't work out on both maybe the billet side or the player side. It's, it doesn't mesh. So guys do switch if, if there's a problem, the teams always are accommodating or try to work through it. Interesting. So before we started recording, you and I had a brief chat. And one of the things we talked about was um, a Kitchener, former Kitchener Ranger, Eric Guest, and some of the videos that he's been putting out on his Instagram and, and Twitter feeds recently. And his billet family is one of the things he talked about where he had a, a very negative experience with his billet family. And one of the things that he that caught my attention about that was he felt that he couldn't speak out about whatever it was. Um, he didn't go into details about it, but whatever it was that made his billet situation unattainable, he just had to eat it because he felt that if he complained to his team, uh, that, that they would just kind of label him problem, a whiner or whatever. If he complained to his parents, his parents' reaction would probably be, well, that doesn't work. You're coming home. And then, you know, his he's he's trying to live that dream of scoring the game winning goal in game seven, double overtime, <laughs> the goal that he scored yeah. on his driveway or the back rink. So if he, you know, if he gets pulled out from his OHL team, well, that makes it pretty hard to carry on his 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 dream and chase the goal. So he just had to eat it. Um, did you go through situations that you felt like that where you had something to complain about, but you just kind of swallowed it because that's what you do in hockey. You'd be tough and deal with it. I think there's different categories. Like when we're talking about billets, um, I saw different guys switch billets. I would have never been, I didn't see anybody who was worried about talking about billets if they were in an unhappy situation. 
But I think I didn't, I don't know exactly, yeah, as you said, the specifics of uh, what Eric Guest was talking about, even though I did watch that uh, message he put out there, which is about 13 minutes long. There are certain aspects, though, when it comes to hazing, for example, I would never have shared that with the team. I know he mentioned hazing as well. When it came to my living arrangements, I would have had no problem talking about my billet to my coach or the general manager. But um, if it came to things that happened amongst the team as a group of 20 players, I wouldn't have shared any of that. with. I wouldn't have been comfortable sharing that with a coach. And I think that was something he alluded to as well. That, And I would have agreed with him on that. I wouldn't share any of that information. Kind of the old saying was, what happens in the room stays in the room. And maybe that's not these days as we're reevaluating where we are as a society with on a number of fronts. That seems like uh, a mantra that doesn't work anymore. Yeah. So in terms of hazing, that's something that's, that's a real buzz in, in the junior hockey community right now with, with what Eric talked about and being forced into a bathroom and as a 16 year old rookie and the, the 19-year-old veterans that are NHL drafted forcing him to to take drugs before they would let him out of the bathroom at 16 years old at their first team party. And then at the same time, you've got Daniel Carcillo um, launching a class action lawsuit against the CHL um, for what he had to endure in his rookie season uh, with Sarnia Sting in the OHL, a little bit closer to home. Um, and at the same time, Guy Flaming from... Uh, the Pipeline Show received a message from an anonymous player and alumni from the WHL, and he said the exact opposite. He said, well, I, I, I don't discount the stories that happened to Dan Carcillo, and it's tragic that that happened to him. He goes, I had the exact opposite experiences. The veteran players on our team took us rookies in and showed us the rope and protected us on and off the ice, told us how to be good hockey players and and how to behave as you know, um, young adults off the ice and taught them valuable lessons. And, you know, of course, they had a little bit of initiation, but it's like picking up pucks after after warm-up or something like that. Um, I hope that the Carcillo incidents are very extreme and very isolated incidents, but I fear that they're not and that it's not the happy, rosy, feel-good story that this player from from the dub talked about. Um, and that the the truth is probably somewhere on average in the middle. Um, without getting into specifics, do, do you have any comment on that about any experiences you have or things you endured or saw? Well, one, one thing I will say, Peter, is myself, uh, as a father now, I have two sons. My son Calvin's a Toronto firefighter, and my son Nick just graduated from Laurentian, and they both played minor hockey. And I've often wondered as a dad, now that I can reflect back on it, how would I feel if if they were had to go through some of the hazing that I experienced? And I watched, and I've often wondered over the years if it still exists in the Ontario Hockey League and other junior leagues. And I kind of hoped it didn't. But when I look at watched the Eric Guest video, it, it kind of confirmed for me that, as you said, that it still exists out there somewhere. And I think if it's one team, it's too many. And when I played, it was kind of the culture at the time. I mean, it's a long time ago in the 80s. But the culture was, as a rookie, you kind of had to earn your stripes. So every at the beginning of the year, there were certain 
things you had to do or you know you were uh, you were made pretty clear that you were a rookie and uh as such you weren't quite treated the same as the other guys but we didn't look at it we didn't always look at it negatively i mean but i think every team every situation is different but i know there were times when it, it did bother some of us and um but after christmas and i know in my situation you know, at that point you were a group, a, a team, and nobody was a rookie anymore. That was kind of one of the things we said after Christmas that we were all, you know, you were longer a rookie. You're still a rookie, I guess, in paper, but as a team, we were one, a unit. But I think every situation is different, and it's, um, but I think it's something we have to look at. It's not only hockey. I've heard, you know, you hear stories in university sports and different workplaces but we're talking about hockey here but if it exists i think it's something that we really need to address and you mentioned about the age of these players and that's something i've thought about like my, i was talked earlier about scott pearson being a, a him and i living on the same street together and i was fortunate that we were both rookies so we were in this boat together but we were we were together all the time so we could lean on each other but he was 15 years old when he came to the ohl he was an underager and I was, I had just turned 17, but he was, he had a late birthday. So he, was, he wasn't 16 until December. You think you've got 20 year olds who are over ages and 19 year old. They're, they're men, they're young men, but they're men. And you know, these 15 and 16 year olds are still boys. And so it's a wide scope and you've got guys who are of age to drink and you've got them all together in this tight unit. And sometimes it doesn't always mesh well. Yeah. Um, and, and hazing isn't something that's, like you said, it isn't unique to hockey, but hockey is not excluded from it, unfortunately. Um, it, what bothers me about it is is the dehumanization that Carcillo had to go through and stuff that's not just, it's not just offside, it's, it's illegal, the things that happened to him. Um, and I don't mean drinking underage. I mean, who doesn't? If you're not, if you're 17 years old and you're drinking, I think that's pretty normal. Um, but being forced to do things and the things that Carcilla had to go through, um, they're they're really they're really terrible. Um, and they can lead to, like in his case, long time mental health issues. And Eric Guest went through mental health issues and he was he was in a home for a while trying to work through his issues and hopefully he's in a much better place now and um and i think you went through some issues too i don't think they were hazing related but um anyways that's enough about hazing i think that's a that's a, a subject for a different podcast than this one um but it does kind of segue into fighting in hockey a little bit and Every time I talk to a former player, I always like to ask them what their thoughts are in fighting in hockey, because I've had a number of conversations with my friends over beers about the value of fighting in hockey. Um, so there's there's kind of two levels to this conversation thread that I want to go through is is how actually impactful is a fight in a hockey game, especially at, you know, at a pro level like the NHL level. And then, you know, knowing what we know about fighting and concussions now and you just talked about the age discrepancy of players in the ohl you know 15 16 year olds versus 19 20 year olds um there's a lot less fighting in junior hockey and some people think that 
that's a great thing. And some people think that it sucks because it's not good hockey anymore. Um, as a as a former junior and pro player and now a dad, I'd be really curious to hear what your thoughts were on this topic. Yeah, I'm in the camp. I don't. I would be fine if they removed fighting from hockey. Um, yeah, I tell a story in my book, Shattered Ice, how in after I was drafted by the Canadians, in anticipation of going to the OHL and the fear or the expectation we all had that we were going to have to fight, we participated in this game we called Buckets. And we went on a friend's front yard. We put our hockey helmets on and our hockey gloves, and we started boxing. And that was an anticipation. We we all had this pressure, feeling that we better learn to fight because we're going to get our butts kicked if we don't learn to fight. So let's practice boxing. And uh, yeah, and I went I went to camp. Another story I say in my book. Uh, well, I got broke my ankle in my first training camp, and the first exhibition game I watched. Well, the first two. First one was in Peterborough. Um, I watched it with a with a broken ankle from the stands, but there was. The, the, pretty much the puck was irrelevant in that game. It was just drop the gloves and fight. <laughs> and I remember just standing there going, holy smokes, like this is not what I'm used to from midget hockey. And then the following week, we played the Belleville Bulls at home. And there was, they say in my book too, there's, I have my uncle kept all the clippings from the Wig Standard for my years in Kingston. So I had actual factual data. There was 299 minutes in penalties in this uh, exhibition game with Belleville so you can imagine how many fights there were and then when I came back from my broken ankle I was obsessed with fighting I because I, I missed the whole exhibition season plus the first 20 games of the regular season and all I wanted all I was on my mind was how am I going to get this first fight out of my off you know off my chest or just get it over with so I scored I scored I had my first goal and first fight in the same game and then it felt pretty good to get that fight off. But I wanted that fight out of the way as much as I wanted to score, which and I look back now and think there's something wrong about that. And then uh, that same year, I got knocked out by Todd Hawkins from the Belleville Bulls. Um, he was a 19-year-old. I was a 17-year-old rookie, and I was trying to stand up for myself in a you know, heated game in Belleville. And he he was a good fighter, and I wasn't, you know, in honesty, being honest with you. And uh, I remember being knocked out and thinking... I have to get to the penalty box like when I came through because I don't want to be seen as someone who can't take a punch. So I got up and uh, I had to end up getting a root canal. But you know, I've, I've seen a lot of guys, I say this in my book too, when, you, when you're up close for some of those fights with two guys who really are going and they're smacking each other, you know, going toe to toe. I remember that sound of fists hitting faces and I, I hated it. I couldn't like sometimes be in front of your bench and you would hit, you would hear the the fist to face on that bare skin and I just I hated it and I watched a lot of you know people say you can't get hurt in a fight it's the farthest thing from the truth I'm tired of hearing that line you can get hurt in a fight and you know the only thing that hasn't happened well maybe it happened once you know thank God but it, it, a fatality can't is the worst thing that could happen. It's rare. We've had a couple instances in the, over the year, decades. And so to say you can't get hurt in a fight is just not true. So, you know, I understand why fighting's in the game. And when we say, you know, the that police have to, sorry, the players have to police the game. 
And sometimes you'll hear people say, oh, players just got to blow off steam in these heated games. But I always look at football players, and uh, that game is just as tough as hockey when it comes to physical contact. And imagine if Tom Brady got run by a, a big old linebacker from the Buffalo Bills, my favorite team. A late hit to Tom Brady's head. Imagine if his center came over and took off his helmet and said to that linebacker, you take off your helmet. Let's go to center. The, let's go to the center of the field, and we're going to fight. And all the other players paired off around them. That would look ridiculous. <laughs> it, would. it would. You're look- not wrong. You're not wrong. And that's somehow because there's been a fighting from in hockey for years. It's acceptable, and I just think it's. I'm not saying there shouldn't be no fighting. I'm saying if you fight, you should be ejected like all the other sports: baseball basketball, football. If you fight, there's fighting in those sports periodically, but if you fight, you're out. And they're every bit as tough. Yeah, so an argument that's for pro fighting, um, you talked about players policing. So, you know, I've heard stories where, you know, a team's taking shots like, uh, I think it was Cornell on the Suspendables podcast was saying that, you know, they were playing uh, Los Angeles in 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 the conference finals. And Marty McSorley was taking runs at Doug Gilmore. And uh, some, I think it was Wendell Clark went over to their bench and said, hey, if you guys keep taking runs at Dougie, we're going to kill Wayne. And that was the That's, end of the runs on Dougie. Yeah. No, I, understand, I totally understand what's behind the mentality of the game. And but that that's the culture that we've developed in the sport. It's real. It's not it's not make believe. I mean, the intimidation is a big part of hockey, and there's no doubt about it. Yeah, but yeah. I don't really mind fighting at the NHL level as long as it's strategic like that. Um, what I hate is the the two big tough guys dropping their gloves at the drop of the puck and just fighting because that's what they get paid to do. So that's what they're going to do. Um, I guess. Yeah. Even the fighting to change the momentum of the game, I'm not really sure I get that either. Um, I think a big hit can be just as effective. Um, Let me say also, but some of the best hockey I love watching is the Stanley Cup Final. There's usually rarely any fights in the Stanley Cup Final when the cup is actually on the line and no one wants to take a foolish penalty. Mm-hmm. So there's less fighting in the final. The war, you know, When you get to the Olympic hockey, we all cheer when Canada plays in the Olympics with our best players. There's never fighting in the Olympic hockey. Why don't we intimidate the Russians by running them out of the building? And I don't know. I just, I same feel with like the world juniors. World, world juniors. They're the, that's some of the best hockey you'll ever watch. And yeah. there's no fighting in that. It's fast. It's, you can still hit hard and you can still be aggressive and, and intimidating, but there is, I guess I'm saying there's no fighting in those games and we still love the, the product but again i'm i know i'm probably in the minority with that opinion i guess it's also as you get older again as a parent um i wouldn't want to watch my son get the crap kicked out of him yeah and um you know we don't get another thing i thought of as a parent or now that i'm a little older who does anyone you know we talked about that backyard rink none of us get into the sport to become to fight you get in to play hockey. Yeah. 
I don't get it. I didn't get into hockey to box on skates, <laughs> even though it ends up being part of it because it has, you have to learn. But I got in it to be that guy scoring that goal in game seven of the Stanley Cup. I didn't get into it because I saw two guys fighting in center ice when I was nine. I got in it to be Wayne Gretzky and score the that big goal. Absolutely. Um, so your rookie season in the OHL, you've got some some pretty interesting players there. Uh, the Kingston was uh, not a good team the season before you came in, and those fortunes turned around in, in your rookie season. Um, one of the players that I, I would really love to hear some some insight on, anyone who, who really knows me well knows that one of my all-time favorite players is Brian Fogarty. He was the Frontenac's uh, first overall pick, I believe. Is it the same draft year as you? Or? Yeah, same draft year as me. Yeah. All right. And then... He was the he, first overall pick of the 1985 draft. Right. Number one overall, yeah. Right. And then one season he broke Bobby Orr's, I think it was single season scoring records in the OHL. Um, yeah. Very, very, very gifted offensive defenseman. Uh, drafted, I think it was ninth overall by the Quebec Nordiques in a year they had two first round draft picks. And then they picked Joe Sackick about 10 picks later. Um, so that's how widely respected he was as a prospect um he was drafted ahead of joe sackick um so you know fogarty had the the skill to go on to win norris trophies stanley cups and and earn millions of dollars but it didn't work out um maybe you can kind of shed some light onto what some of the challenges he had as a hockey player i remember being really impressed or that when he was the first overall pick of the 85 draft, he was coming from the Aurora Tigers. And the talk was that he had played in Aurora as a 14-year-old. We talked earlier about underages, young kids. He he was an underage draft pick. and it, So he was playing Tier 2. His hometown was Brantford. And uh, Brantford played in the league I grew up playing in. They were one of our rivals here in Kitchener. And, yeah, he's playing Tier 2 as a 14-year-old. So that was... Uh, impressive to say the least that he was playing and he was doing well coming to Kingston as an underage he came with a a lot of uh, upside and then it was real prospect that first year he didn't have a terrific I wouldn't say he had an outstanding underage year although we had a real veteran team and we had six I remember we had six returning defensemen and he was kind of number seven and worked his way in and out of the lineup at times but we had a real veteran team, so he, he still saw his ice time, but not the ice time he was probably used to in Tier 2. But what I will say is in Year 2, that was his draft year, and he came ready to play in Year 2. And as, a, as I recall, he was the top-scoring defenseman in the OHL that year. I believe he had seven, around 70 points. And uh, he was excellent. He was so light on his feet for a big guy. He was like a 6'2", 200-pound guy, but he could skate. And uh, his vision on the ice was incredible. Great shot, saw the ice. And he almost looked like he was floating the way he moved around. He was just a real nice skater. He was a pleasure to watch. But that year, he was outstanding. And as you mentioned, it paid off for him being drafted ninth overall by the Nordiques. The following year was a disaster for all of us, which I talk about in Shattered Ice. That uh, infamous season in Kingston where uh, 
things just went off the rails and we set that losing record. But that wasn't a good year for any of us. And it was a tough, tough goal. But I remember the following season was my first year of professional hockey. And he was in, he got traded to Niagara Falls. Scott Pearson ended up there as well. And that's the year he broke the record. Dennis Potvin and Bob Yor's OHL records, which was astounding. He had 155 points in 60 games that year. Now my understanding, if I'm correct, is he lived at home in Brantford that year and commuted to, to Niagara. I'm not 100% sure, but I'm fr- quite confident that's the way that went. And yeah, it's an incredible hockey season. Like It's just uh, incredible what he did that year. I didn't play against him much in pro, though, because we were just in uh, different places at different times. Yeah, so he had some uh, he had some demons. He he hit the bottle, and one season in Quebec, in their infinite wisdom, the Quebec Nordiques made him roommates with John Cordick. I'm not sure what they thinking the the upside of that, <laughs> of that situation would have been, but those are two guys who had substance abuse problems, and they make them roommates. Um, maybe I don't know what they were in there but um do you have any uh any stories about Fogarty I mean his nickname from my understanding when he when he played in Kingston and as a 16 year old was uh was Tippy yeah that's correct um, <laughs> he was a super nice guy off the ice he was such a, a and he was a quiet guy and I don't know if that again came from being a well he was the youngest child I believe in a big family a lot of siblings um he really was quiet in the dressing room and off the ice. Like he was not the guy you would have pointed to. That's uh, everybody is the center. He's the, he was never the center of attention that everybody was watching kind of thing. Like he was just one of the guys. Um, yeah. He certainly got into some trouble off the ice. I know he, he missed some, some games where uh, he had some maybe curfew violations and kinks and, and coach O'Donnell had to, set him down, sit him down for a couple of games here and there. But I lived in a, a different part of the city than he did. He lived in Bay Ridge, and which is uh, on the west side of Kingston. I lived on the east side of Kingston. And we went to different high schools. So we really kind of ran, other than when we were at the arena, we really did run in different groups. And there was only three of us out in uh, this part of town where I lived over. We went to LaSalle Secondary over there in Kingston that side of town. It was only myself, Scott and Brian Verbeek. So I did run in some different circles, but I know, uh, the last year, you know, we, we were just trying to survive as a team and, um, it was a really trying season. And I don't think any of us came out of that last season feeling very good about ourselves, including myself. Let's talk a little bit about your draft here. So the NHL draft is, um, it's never been popular and, and more popular than it is now, in my opinion. And a lot of, um, a lot of hype all season goes towards the draft. And there's all kinds on the internet now. There's all kinds of um, people like myself and Diver Prospects uh, and so on and so on and so on and so on that do draft rankings. Everyone in their, their pet seems to have their top 31 draft rankings every year. Um, so there's a lot of, of pressure on players when they're in their draft year. Um, now when you were playing, the internet wasn't, uh, wasn't a thing. Did you still have a lot of pressure Were there still draft rankings or, um, what was your experience like 
as a junior player in your NHL draft year. You're totally, I totally agree with what you just said there. There was no Twitter, well, no internet, no Twitter, no Instagram. Everything is magnified today. So it, it was there in the back of my mind, but I wasn't hyper-focused on it. There wasn't a TSN draft show, at least that I remember, or halfway through the season. And then again, you know, a mid, early, mid, and end of season prospects list, even though there would have been with central scouting. But I wasn't seeing it in social media or on TV all the time. And I think for me as well, I, I had a, I broke, because I broke my ankle that rookie season, my whole focus was just getting back in the lineup and playing a regular shift, which I started to do after Christmas. And I was trying to just keep getting better and better and having a role on my team. And I wasn't thinking too hard about the draft because I was just thinking about succeeding within the Canadians. But the, that was actually a blessing because I was only because I was only focused on my day-to-day playing. I didn't let that other outside stuff really uh, penetrate me because it just wasn't in my thought process at the time. And it actually worked out okay. And as it, at the end of the year, I had played quite well in the second half, and then the scouts had noticed. And because of the way I played, I moved up quite significantly in the rankings, and it was fortunate to be drafted in the second round. Um, tell me a little bit about the draft day experience. What was that? What was that like then? I've been to about four or five NHL drafts now, so I've uh, I've seen what it's like at the draft, the media, and and some of the players and and their experiences. But what was yours like? So I had just said that leading up to the draft during the hockey season, I wasn't really aware of it, but of the draft. But when I got to the draft, that was intense. Um, there was no denying that. We took a train from Toronto to Montreal with my agent, Rick Curran. My parents came along and uh, I felt the pressure at the draft for sure. Like that It was at the Montreal Forum. So taking the train to Montreal was a lot of fun with my parents. And then once we got to the hotel, you know, there's agents, GMs, coaches, all milling around. Guys are doing interviews and we're all in this, you know, one hub. And I, I definitely felt the pressure and I, I roomed with my Kingston uh, teammate, Mark LaForge, who was also a, a client of Rick Curran and Bernada Sports, who was also Bill Waters and Rick Curran ran Bernada Sports. And walking into the forum, it was, uh, it was amazing. Like I was, I was in awe seeing the, the, uh, the draft floor with all the tables for the teams uh, the stage and then having tickets to our seats and everybody sitting there no, and knowing you're all there for the same reason, hoping to hear your name called. It, it, there was pressure and you know, I was fortunate. I, again, being drafted in the second round, it happened quicker than, you know, it does for others, but it was, a, it was a, one of the most memorable days of my career for sure. Yeah, for a lot of players, it's it can be the highlight of their career. Even if they're drafted in the first round, that can be the pinnacle of, of the achievement of their, their career, that draft day experience. It is really quite an event, and it, it's very special. It's my favorite event of the year, um, personally, and I don't even play hockey. So I can only imagine what it would be like to be a draft-eligible player at the draft it would just be a crazy emotional roller coaster i think peter too when you get to put that jersey on like everything's in front of you so you're on the stage you've got this 
coach, GM, and scouting staff, but I say this in my book, they just said to the world, we believe in you. And there's, there's a lot of power when you throw that jersey on and you just feel 10 feet tall because now your dream is right in front of you. And it's all, it's all coming next. Like it's, it's looking to the future. There's so much hope on draft day. I think that's one of the reasons we all love draft day is when you get drafted, it's, it's about hope for the future. And is this going to be my career? And am I going to fulfill my dream? And it's another, it's a huge step on that journey. And I remember after I put the jersey on, you take the photos in front of the NHL Shield, which is also a thrill with my parents and myself. And then I went to the Caps draft table and you meet all the brass. And I met Brian Murray and Terry Murray and David Poyle. And I sat at the table and I just soaked it all up. And even though after we exchanged our, you know, polite conversation, I just sat there and watched for a while because, and I didn't really want to leave the table. I just wanted to soak it all in. Yeah, I bet. Um, okay, so you play junior in Kingston. You get drafted in the second round by the Caps. We talked about what your experience was like as as a rookie in the OHL. Let's skip forward a little bit and talk a little bit about how the pressure changes once you become a pro player. Now you're getting paid to play hockey, which must be surreal. Um, the coaching is is probably a lot different. Your living arrangement is certainly different. You're living on your, your own or with a roommate, but not a billet family. Um, and you're even further from home. Now you're in another country. You're south of the 49th. Um, what are some things that really stood out to you about the jump from junior hockey to pro hockey? Because a lot of people say that is the biggest jump you'll make in hockey. It's a, it's the hardest one to make. It absolutely is. It is. Um... And I'll, I'll just tell you a couple of things on ice and off ice. Looking back now, I can reflect on it. I underestimated how uh, finding my own place to live and having a roommate, uh, how important that was. And uh, I underestimated you know, how prepared I was for it. I thought at 20 years old, you think you're ready for it. But uh, looking back, I really wasn't as ready as I thought. So you get in a, so you got to find a place to live. You got to furnish it. And you got to cook for yourself. Again, we've relied on a billet like we talked about for the last three years to do those things. Now you're doing them yourself and you've got a lot of time. I think this is one of the pitfalls for a lot of players is you have a lot of time and you have money in your pocket. So you on a typical day, we practice from, you know, 10 to 12 and then you got the rest of the day off. So it's very easy to get distracted or end up spending too much time in the wrong places with the wrong people. And you really have to be, uh, you have to be able to manage your time effectively. So that was a huge change that I had to make. Um, but then on the ice, I'll just tell you one hockey story. The players are so much stronger. And you're kind of like now you're playing with guys who could be anywhere from 20 to, you know, and up 35 year old veterans on occasion. And uh, we just talked about in junior, you're playing with anywhere from 15 to 20 year olds. But now you're playing with men who are. And some are pretty crafty. So I tell this, this is a story. Uh, one of my first AHL games against the Hershey Bears. And I talk about crafty veterans. I was a left winger. And I was playing Mark Lofthouse, who was a veteran player. Played some time in the NHL and a lot of time in the minor leagues as well. But a real crafty guy, a solid two-way forward. And we were moving up the, uh, he was attacking our zone. And we were, I was back-checking through the neutral zone with him. 
and he grabbed my arm and spun me around. So it's it's technically a penalty, but it then it looked innocent enough. But while he spun me around, he broke as hard as he could for the net. And he created what was a three on three in the neutral zone. He turned into a three on two by spinning me around and he scored off the back post on a perfect pass. And I remember thinking, no one in junior has ever done that to me. Like <laughs> I thought, wow, like that that's the type of little, you know, you call knacks and tricks. You call it a veteran move, maybe. But that was the type of thing where he was just a smarter hockey player than me at that time. More experienced, understood the game far better than I did. And he knew that by gaining himself that little two-second advantage, he might score. And in that case, he did. But I never forgot that because I remember saying to myself when I got off the ice with my minus one that uh, I'm never going to let that happen to me again. So I learned a lesson right off the hop from a guy on on the opposition. That's a great story. I love that. Another one of my favorite parts of your book is is you're talking about your first game in the in the NHL and how you lined up against Bob Probert on the first shift. But if you back that up a little bit during the pregame skate, you said that. Uh, <clears throat> well, I'll let you tell the story. It has to do with uh, your former coach, Doug McLean. This is a great story. Yeah. So the. The previous season, Doug McLean was our coach in Baltimore. And uh, I always tell people he was my favorite coach. Like I played for a lot of terrific coaches, but by, he was definitely my favorite coach. And uh, I just loved playing for him. I say I, I'd run through walls for him as a coach. So at the end of that season, though, the Caps let him go. And he ended up in Detroit with Brian Murray. And he was Brian's assistant coach in Washington for a couple of years. So they ended up back. They left the Capitals organization and they ended up together in Detroit. And as it happens, my first NHL games in Detroit in January of 1991. And I was so nervous. I remember skating around in warm up and I felt like I was skating on ski moguls. Like it felt like there was bumps in the ice. And I had to talk myself out of that. And while I'm skating around, I see Doug <laughs> McLean on the bench. And I, as I'm trying to calm my nerves, I thought, why don't I go say hi to Doug on the bench? And he'll just calm my nerves a bit more. Maybe I'll just relax here and see a familiar face. There's my favorite coach of, from last season. So I come across the blue line and uh, has start heading towards the Detroit bench. And he, we make eye contact. And I look at him, and I think he's going to say something profound to me or you know, just like encouraging. And he, he looks at me and says, hey, Seth, I told Probert you're the goon called up from Baltimore. And then I, I continue my trajectory, and I did a double take and just looked back at him like, "What?" He said, and I, "Then that, that didn't help my anxiety at that moment." That's for sure. <laughs> and then your first shift is against Bob Probert. <laughs> yeah, so then I just you had a bit more. your pants. <laughs> well, to add a bit more, we go back to the room, and I had no anticipation of starting. I didn't really know what was going to happen. First NHL game, and Terry Murray was the head coach. And he goes, here's our starting lineup, Hunter, Septel, Drews. So I'm starting with Dale Hunter at center, who's a feisty player in his own right. Obviously, we know his history. And then John Drews. So I'm lined up on the blue line for the national anthem, and I look across. And any hockey player will tell you that preparation, you want to know who you're up against. And I was always like that as a player. I always scoured the lineups for see who was playing. But I look across the blue line, and I'm knowing I'm going to be playing against 
Detroit's right winger, and there I see him, 24 white, Bob Prover. And then I start thinking, holy, like maybe he did, maybe he's serious. I thought he was joking, (laughs) but damn, maybe he's serious. He did tell him that. And I wasn't the goon from Baltimore by any means, but uh, I read Bob Probert's book years later. And what he said in his book is if you were called up and he didn't know who you were, he basically, he didn't, he wasn't going to give you the time of day. Like kind of had to earn your right to, (laughs) I wasn't looking to fight him that day anyway. But it's a great story. And uh, that game we won in overtime. And it's again, one of those things you'll never forget your first NHL game. Uh, Doug McLean did the forward for your book, and you mentioned that he's one of your favorite coaches. Um, everyone's really familiar with Doug McLean. He had a very good coaching career, general manager of Columbus Blue Jackets, and he's a pretty big personality on on television here in Canada. Um, tell me a little bit about Doug. Well, he has a PhD in educational psychology, which I didn't know till I started researching for my book. And I think that's why I connected with him. I always struggled with my anxiety as a player and, and later on in life after playing. And uh, I always connected with Doug. I loved hearing him laugh. I mentioned that in the book, Shattered Ice. Like when he guys would tell him a joke, I actually got excited because I just wanted to hear him laugh because his, he had this real infectious laugh that just kind of wiped a lot of the stress away for me. And he gave me a lot of uh, positive praise that I fed off and it really raised the level of my game. But looking years ahead, when I was struggling, I was off, I'd gone off work for some personal mental health problems, call it a mental breakdown is easiest way to understand it. And I started writing this book during that period of time. And I was off work for 18 months. And as I was coming to a conclusion, I was looking for someone to write the foreword. I had that in mind. And I thought of the best person I could think of that I would be honored to have write it was Doug McLean. And I reached out to him through a, an old newspaper reporter from Baltimore. And he, it's interesting as he said to me, uh, I sent him a text and he sent me one back saying, Doug, I let Doug know that you're interested in talking to him. And then five minutes later, he sent me another message saying he's waiting, your co- waiting for your call. So I called him out of the blue. Uh, this is 2018. And it caught him off guard. I haven't tried to talk to him in years, but I guess the message I would put out there is that hockey family had never forgotten me. I always thought that the hockey world could cast me aside and that was kind of my mental health talking, but they hadn't, it was just me. It was, I pushed them away. And when I reached out to him, he was more than happy to meet me and he invited me to Toronto to come meet him for lunch and we sat together for two hours and talked about the old days and I explained uh, about the book and what I had been going through and he was shocked to hear about what I've been going through with my mental health but I said to him you shouldn't be shocked because when we were together I would have never told you that it wasn't even part of the vernacular then or the book nobody was talking mental health in, in the 80s and 90s yeah so I said you shouldn't be shocked because there's no way you I would have ever shared it so I I asked him to write the forward and uh, he agreed. And what a great meeting. Like I felt so good about it. And he gave me a plug the next day on hockey central. Um, he talked to, to, told the guys that he had met me for lunch and he said, what a great day it was for him and how that hockey bond was still there between us. And that he enjoyed seeing former players and reconnecting. And 
Yeah, I was uh, I was so thrilled that he wrote the forward, and I have to thank him because uh, he he was just a great support for me through this whole book writing and book launch process. Yeah, and you're uh, teammates with uh, Nick Kiprios too. He and and Doug are on Hockey Central together. And when I posted on Twitter that um, I was going to have you on, Kipper reached out to me. He said Steve's as solid as they come. So you're right. That that community is is tight, and it's a really giving community. I mean, I don't really consider myself to be anywhere close to part of it. I'm just a fan who does some writing and and has a podcast, but. I've, uh, I've I've earned some media credentials as a result of my work, and that has given me access to players and coaches and general managers and, and other media hockey personalities. And anyone who I've ever um, reached out to or asked to have a conversation with or for an interview for an article or a podcast um, has always been very gracious with their time. And you're just the latest example of that. You're someone who who is in the hockey community and family. And now you're a, a published author and here you are spending an hour of your Monday morning chit-chatting with me on the podcast. So it's a, it's a really great culture. There's, there's very few exceptions to that uh, in this game. Well, I appreciate the kind words. Um, yeah. I'm just trying to, you know, with my book and with where, what I've gone through in the last two years, I've really had a, an awakening myself with mental health and, uh, I'm trying to do some of these podcasts and promote that mental health and mental wellness because there are so many players struggle with it, but for many years, it's not something we ever talked about or shared. And, you know, is that Michael Landsberg is one of the guys I like to listen. I've listened to has helped uh, one of the first people I was instructed to go listen to for some education. But I remember his sick, not weak struck me right away. And I thought, wow, that is such a powerful hashtag and statement and I think that's the way I felt most of my career and I'm sure a lot of other players do I always felt mental health was a weakness I never thought I never believed it was an illness although no one ever told me it was I thought it was a weakness and I thought it made me not less of a person but not um not worthy of certain things but um it's an illness that I had to deal with and now that I've dealt with it I'm in a much better place as a person as a dad as a husband than I was prior to dealing with it so if I can reach anybody out there and even if it ignites something in them that motivates them to go out and and get some help for something they're dealing with it it's a positive thing I'll tell you a short story too I had a book signing last fall in Kingston and I went to college in Kingston prior to moving here after hockey for a couple years and I left because of some anxiety issues I was having at the time. But one of my classmates came up to me at a book launch, and, and he's uh, living in Kingston now. And he shared his story with me, and it felt so good. Like I was the first male he shared his story with, or at least. And we were dealing with the same stuff when we were classmates, but we didn't really understand, know it. But he was willing to share it with me because I opened myself up now. So I thought it was really, it made me feel really good and inspired me to keep doing this. Right on. Yeah, like like I said, the uh, the ending of the book um, really, really struck me. How when your career ended uh, way too early due to, due to injuries and 
you felt like you were, you know, you were a second round pick. You had a couple years of experience in the AHL. You had really established yourself as a professional hockey player. And then the next logical move would be to try and make that jump again to another league into the NHL. And, you know, I never got to watch you play, but by all accounts, <clears throat> you had the the speed, the skill, the toughness, you know, to to make it. Um, and you were kind of denied that opportunity. So you were saying you felt like your career um, was a fail. Um, yeah. And it took, it took you a long time to come to a different conclusion. And uh, I thought that was really powerful. And I think it's a tremendous message. And I want to thank you for writing your book. I really, I really enjoyed it. Everyone gets an opportunity to hear about, you know, the Wayne Gretzky story and how, you know, superstar players have this great lifestyle and, and everything just plays out for them. Um, but it's like the, the two and 20 rule, like I said, you know, two yeah. players on an OHL team have a chance to make it and 20 think that they do. And maybe one actually does. Um, and, you know, your career was was a good one. You you played in the NHL. You you had games in the NHL and you had a good career. You made great connections. Uh, and hey, I read your story. It was a great ride. It's a good journey. Um, you got you got a lot closer than I did. <laughs> oh, thank you, Peter. It's nice to hear that. Um, I think we're we're preparing players better as well for the end of their careers. That's something else we need to focus on. So many of us, like you said, we talked earlier, we all have the same dream, but when it's over, it's a now what situation. And sure, some guys have a smoother transition than others, but I think we certainly need to do a better job of preparing players for what they do when they're finished. Yeah, not too many players retire from hockey. Most of them are retired. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And they're usually quite often just not sure what they, what they're going to do next. And it's a, it's a difficult transition for athletes. Yeah, I, I understand. Um, another story Russ Cortnell shared on his podcast recently was when he retired, he lived in California. Um, and that was amazing for him because no one in California knew or cared what he did, right? Like he had a group of friends that he'd have coffee with every morning for an hour um, and they're all in suits or whatever, and he's in jeans and a t-shirt, and they go off to work. And one day, one of the guys said, don't you have somewhere to go, Russ? Like, what do you do? And he's like, oh, I'm a retired professional hockey player. And he's like, oh, cool. Well, see you tomorrow. Oh, yeah. Right? He goes, but yeah. then you, re- you retire in places like Kitchener or Kingston, and everyone, you run into people in the grocery store or whatever you're out and about, and they're like, oh, man, you're uh, you're Steve Seftel. You, you played hockey, man. It's too bad. You why aren't you still playing? You're good. I, uh, you, you can play still. Why aren't you playing? And it's like, well, gee, thanks, man. Well, one of my stories, uh, you know, when I was with my anxiety, I would literally, even funny you mentioned that, I would literally dodge people to avoid those questions you're talking about. Yeah. If I saw someone in a, you know, the Cataraqui Mall in Kingston, I would literally turn and go down a different hall to avoid those questions. And uh, I look back on it now I mean, it wasn't, I regret that, but I wasn't at the time prepared to answer the questions and are equipped with the tools. So, but yeah, it's, it's true. I would, it's a different, it's tough. And can we, you're putting a pedestal, if I can use that term for, then you're, uh, you have so much 
to gain along the route. Then you feel like you lose it all and that you're not the same person, but actually you are. You're just not playing hockey anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Steve, it's a, it was a great journey reading your book and I really enjoyed our, our conversation here. Um, there's a lot of factors I think that can, you know, lead to challenges for mental health for hockey players. Um, being in a billet family when you're, when you're 16 years old and playing in a league against men and finding yourself in a situation where you might have to literally fight for your career, um, playing games like buckets on the front lawn and getting your bell rung. Um, you know, you've got the, the, the pressures of coming of age with, you know, being a responsible drinker and partier and balancing that. And then you have even more time in the AHL and the pressures of succeeding. And you talked about the pressures that you put on yourself to meet your friends and family's expectations. Um, and, you know, your career is short. You, you don't want to do anything that would jeopardize your, your standing in that. And unfortunately, uh, I think, unfortunately, hockey is a very bravado mentality. You know, hockey players are tough. You know, soccer players get flicked on the ear and they, they go down and writhe in pain for 20 minutes. A hockey player takes a 80-mile-an-hour slap shot and the gob spits their teeth out and goes down to block the, the, the rebound shot. Yeah, true. So, you know, I, I think I, I like the fact that it's not soccer um, and that, you know, hockey players are, are tough, but I think there's a difference between physical toughness and, and mental toughness. And I don't know what the answer is, but I think we need to find the right balance there. And, and people writing books like the one you wrote, I think, is a really good step in that direction. Uh, the videos that people like Eric Guest are posting, I think, is a, is a really good step in the right direction. And I think people... Like Dan Carcello, trying to break the cycle of, of hazing is a is a really good step in the right direction, too. Um, so a lot of work to do to, to make the great game of hockey uh, a safer place for the people that play it. You know, I went back to, last the thing I'll say is I went back to coaching. My wife and son encouraged me to get back into the rank, and maybe we got to start at those at the youth level and uh, just... You know, I talked earlier at the beginning, kind of bring it back to scoring that winning goal in game seven on the outdoor rink. I'm coaching 10, 11 year olds the last couple of years, and they come to, to the rink with that glow in their face. Like they think they're going to score the winning goal in game seven, and uh, they have big smiles on their faces, and they're there because they love the sport. So it's, it's still, it's a great game. It's, uh, it's a Canadian game, it's in our heart and soul. And it was good getting back to coaching to see uh, the youthful enthusiasm that comes from the kids that are still playing this game. It is a great game. Yeah, you mentioned that the first coaching impact on your career was when you were nine years old and your coach taught you uh, the four Ds that you talk about in your book. And it's a, what is that, a mantra, I guess you could say, whatever, that yeah, you still carry to this day. Yeah, words to live by, for sure. The other story with... My first, uh, I also mentioned in the book, Larry Lyman was his name. He, he lined us up on the blue line. He shot a puck down the ice and he said, I dare any of you boys to skate as fast as that puck. His lesson was pass the puck because the puck moves faster than any human on the, on the earth. And uh, yeah, he, he, that stayed with me from my entire career and life. I've never forgotten that. From a nine-year guy who coached me in minor Adam when I was nine. So that's the impact you have as a coach on the youth. So. 
I think that's where we uh, we really got to focus a lot of our attention as well on the young kids coming through the system. Right on. Steve, where can people find your book? Because I really encourage them to go out and buy it and support you and, and read the book. It's it's a great story. The book's on Amazon. Uh, you can also get it in Kindle and Kindle Unlimited. Uh, last fall, I also recorded the audio version version so it's available on audible as well if you prefer listening to your books as far as bookstores uh it's only in southern southwestern ontario down here in my end of the province but amazon is the best place to get it and uh yeah i sold one in australia and one in new zealand because now anyway amazon's become a is a worldwide a global company so that was kind of exciting too yeah, there's there's hockey players everywhere, man. I, I occasionally I'll glance at the uh, the stats page for my podcast, and I'm like, who is listening to this in Japan? <laughs> yeah, wow, you're right. It is a global sport. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I think the the Japan listeners um, would be transplanted Canadians would be my guess, but it's still kind of crazy to see some of the countries that people are listening to this podcast in. I never thought okay. anyone in like. South America or <laughs> anywhere would be listening to this, but hey, someone in Brazil is. Well, the, the fellow who bought my book in Australia was a transplanted Canadian from Prescott, Ontario, which isn't too far from, from Kingston, down in no. eastern Ontario. And uh, so, yeah, you're right. There's uh, hockey fans all over. Indeed there are. Steve, I really enjoyed uh, spending some time with you talking about your book. And uh, next time you're in Kingston... Uh, if you come to a front next game, I'll buy you a beer, man. Thank you for having me, Peter. It was a, it was a real fun discussion. Indeed. All right. So that wraps up this episode. Thanks for listening. You can follow uh, this podcast on Twitter at DPR underscore show. Or if you want to follow me, it's at Farling, P-H-A-R-L-I-N-G. And Steve is at S-L-S-E-F-T-E-L. Uh, so give Steve Seftel a follow on Twitter and, and buy his book too. It's You won't regret it. That's it. We'll see you on the next show.